actually. Yeah, it actually is. Nacho Libre? Yeah, it's Nacho Libre. Really? It looks like it's off a Ravel kit. <laughs> well, you were listening to the Micro Machines podcast, and today our episode is going to be on... Well, don't all go at once. <laughs> it's a boat. So this, this is going to be our first naval ship. This is the Flower-class Corvette. And I am going to tell everyone all about it, because you guys probably don't know jack shit about it. Yeah, Why would you me. say that to Jack? Why would you say that to <laughs> I know it floats, because that's something boats tend to do. Like, they don't all float, Greg. They, they don't You're all right, float. You're right, the Titanic doesn't. Just ask yeah. the Russians. The Moscow doesn't. <laughs> well, shall we do some introductions? I uh, think so. So you got me, Callum, from New Zealand. Currently enjoying a nice cold beer while hosting this episode. I'm Jack, me, uh, I'm previously mentioned. The... God damn it, Dennis. <laughs> you first, Habibi. You motherfuckers. <laughs> I'm Jack, previously mentioned. I'm from Ontario. I've got a tea because we say our drinks on this podcast. Go, Dennis. I am Dennis. I'm recording uh, just south of Jack, and I am joined here tonight by Mr. Tamiya, the emotional support sushi. <laughs> um, I am Ezra in hot, sweaty New Mexico, being healthy for once and drinking grapefruit juice and seltzer water for some weird reason. Damn, nice. Yeah. Seltzer water. The reason you're hot right now is because you're wearing a hoodie. Okay. Take no, it's because it he's got a foot Take behind him. Off. Oh, I do have a yeah, foot behind him. Yeah, he does. The dogs. Well, my name is Greg. I'm recording from SoCal, drinking some coffee because I have class. I'm like Captain Fox. All right. Wonderful. And today's episode is going to be on the aforementioned Flower Class Corvette. So. Well, just what is a Corvette? So, first off, we're going to talk about the design of them. So, the term Corvette was, orig was originally a French name for a small sailing warship intermediate between the frigate and the sloop of war, or the man of war. In the 1830s, the term was later adopted by the Royal Navy for sailing warships of roughly similar size, primarily operating in the shipping protection role. Uh, so corvettes have always been known as escort ships. With the arrival of steam power, paddle, steam power, paddle, and later screw-driven corvettes were built for the same purpose, growing in power, size, and armament over the decades. In 1877, the Royal Navy abolished the corvette as a traditional category. Corvettes and frigates were then combined into a new, new category, the cruiser. The months leading up to World War II saw the Royal Navy return to the concept of small escort warship being used in the shipping protection role. The flower class was based on the design of Southern Pride, a whale catcher, and was labelled Corvette, thus restoring the title for the Royal Navy. Although the flower class has no, con no connection with the pre-1877 cruising vessels. Uh, this one's just for Ezra. There are two distinct groups of vessels in this class. The original flower class, 225 vessels ordered during 1939 and 1940, and the modified flower class, which followed with a further 69 vessels ordered from 1940 onward. The modified flowers were slightly larger and better armed. It's the uh, flower class Gran Turismo. 
Pretty much. I will say that um, flower class. <laughs> that modified flower class with that black uh, black hole is sexy as fuck. I love that. Yeah. So flower class vessels of original and modified design source service with the USN as Tempest and Action Class gunboats. They carried the hull classification PG. Uh, so that's the US. Uh, for some reason, the US just had to be a bit different, call them patrol gunboats instead of corvettes, and yada, yada, yada. But you can see here on this slide, on the left you have the early mod, early modification, and on the right is the later modification, a design difference that we're going to talk about a bit later on. As checkers. <laughs> so, shall we go to... A bit more about the design? No. So yeah, here, here you can see uh, <laughs> here you can see two photos. Top one being the being the uh, original, bottom being the modifieds. So about the design of the Corvette. In early nineteen thirty nine, with the risk of Nazi Germany increasing, it was clear that the Royal Navy needed more escort ships to counter threat from Kriegsmarine U boats. You know, because they, uh, they definitely knew from World War One that they were going to try that one again. One particular concern was the need to protect sh shipping off the east coast of Britain. What was needed was something larger and faster than trawlers, but still cheap enough to be built in large numbers. Preferably at small merchant shipyards, as larger yards were already busy building big bigger and better things, uh, battleships, cruisers, stuff like that. To meet this requirement, the Smith Stock Company of South Bank on Tees, a specialist in the design and build of fishing vessels, offered a development from its 700-ton, 16-knot whaler, the Southern Pride, which is what I mentioned before. They intended right. as <laughs> they were intended as small convoy escort ships that could be produced quickly and cheaply in large numbers, despite Neville Planner's intentions that they'd be they be deployed for coastal convoys, their long range meant that they became the mainstay of mid-ocean escort force convoy protection during the first half of the war. The flower class became an essential resource for North Atlantic convoy protection until larger vessels such as destroyer escorts and frigates could be produced in significant numbers. So basically the flower class was a stopgap. Hands off the, the extra thin, the... Jack. <laughs> oh dear! Don't you two start. <laughs> Don't you two start. <laughs> now, the simple design of the flower class, using parts and techniques common to merchant shipping, meant that they could be constructed in small commercial shipyards all over the United Kingdom and Canada, this where larger. It has a striking significance. It's like very similar to uh, most merchant ships that I remember seeing um, in the East Coast. Yeah, I mean, basically, you're looking at an armed merchant ship. Uh, ist. Um, yeah, the flower, the flower, that was main main use. You could produce a lot of these because um, instead of military shipbuilders and stuff, um, you could use shipping. Um, you know, fish fish boat builders, you know, everyone else could build flower class boats because they were smaller, cheaper, use the same parts. That was the intended purpose of them. It's a fishing boat with a 50 cal. Yeah, a bit more than a 50 cal. We'll get in. <laughs> Sounds American. On. It does sound very American. The Americans definitely Americanized their ones. I can tell you that. 
So, additionally, the use of triple commercial triple expansion machinery instead of steam turbines meant that the largely Royal Navy Naval Reserve and Royal Navy Volunteer Reserve crews that were manning the corvettes would be familiar with their operation. Basically, you had merchant, you had the merchant navy who were all civilians. They were using civilian equipment. They didn't need to try and convert to the uh, newer steam turbines that they weren't used to. They could, they were basically just using their own equipment, uh, which just makes for more better efficiency. Um, you know, better use of manpower, stuff like that. So, Fowl-class vessels were slow for a warship with a maximum, maximum speed of 16 knots, or 30 kilometers an hour. They were also very lightly armed, as they were intended solely for anti-submarine warfare. Many of the RCN's original Fowl-class ships were, init were initially fitted with mine-sweeping equipment, while virtually all of the modified flowers were fitted with a limited anti-aircraft capability. The original flowers had the standard Royal Navy layout consisting of a raised forecastle, a well deck, then the bridge or wheelhouse, and a continuous deck running aft. The crew quarters were in the... Oh boy, this is a French word, I believe. Uh-oh. Oh no. Nothing good of that ever comes to the French. Nope, two Ontarians nope, it's just a, nope, someone, nope, it's just an abbreviation. The crew quarters were in the forecastle. Oh, thank God. Um, <laughs> I, <laughs> it's right. um, I totally miswrote what that was on my notes, so that one's on me, not the French. Sorry. Just blame it on Screw the French it. anyway. Blame it on the French. I'll yeah. still blame it on the French. Fuck the French. Well, <laughs> so the crew quarters yep. were in the forecastle, while the galley was in the rear, making for poor, poor messing arrangements. Basically, you had to go from one, one end of the ship to the other to get your food. Bugger that. I'd see Greg's had to go through that once or twice. It's like me walking to the refrigerator yes. in the middle of the night to get my snack. That's exactly <laughs> what it's like. <laughs> <laughs> Except there's like 50 people in front of you and the light isn't moving. Yeah. Uh, this next bit is for Ezra. Ooh. The modified flowers saw the, saw, saw the forecastle extended aft past the bridge to the aft end of the funnel a variation known as the long forecastle design. Apart from providing a very useful space where the crew, whole crew could gather out of the weather, the added weight improved the ship's sta stability and speed, and was retroactively fitted to a number of the original flower-class vessels during the mid and later years of the war. The original flowers had a mast located immediately forward of the bridge, a notable exception of to naval practice at the time. The modified flowers saw the mast returned to the normal position immediately after the bridge. However, this does not seem to have been done to all the modifieds or conversions. Question uh, to for you, Callum. Yo. This is going to be a really ridiculously stupid question. What was the purpose of a mast on, I'm assuming here, a diesel-powered uh, ship? Uh, primarily communications. Oh, okay. Um, so it was like more of a radio. It was just to hold up the radio antenna. Yeah. It's, oh, okay. It, so it held up uh, antennas. Um, traditionally, a mast was used. You could also use a mast for holding uh, tying things down and stuff like that. It's a bit complicated, but primarily masts back then were used for communications. They held um, radio antennas, wires, stuff like that. Fucking Ezra is losing his goddamn mind right now. Sorry, Ezra. I'm sorry. Oh, stupid. What's new? What's new? That's true. This is true. 
So to finish off the appearance of the flower class, they had a cruiser stern. So I take it you guys don't know what a cruiser stern is. Fuck no. I think you'll tell <laughs> us though. So a cruiser stern is the design of the back. Uh, traditionally with boats, uh, you see on wooden sailing ships and all that, the um, you get when you design to the stern of the ship, it just cut off flat. Uh, a cruiser stern it tapers down a bit. Uh, this this uh, reduces drag, um, increases speed, stuff like that. Basically, it was just uh, yeah, it was just a tapered sort of stern, which gave, gave it a bit more efficiency in the water, as opposed to just a flat uh, flat stern, which created drag. So, Weren't the Canadian flowers along, also like way thicker than the British ones, like at the rear especially? Well, yeah, it's all the poutine. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Callum. Yo. So, what exactly is the ideal ass of a ship? <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> Are you a master yeah, of stern? Not sorry for that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> armament all depends on the ship like depends on the size depends on the weight depends on the use um <laughs> the use. yeah it's all yeah all depends on how you use that ass <laughs> it's not about the shape <laughs> or the size it's about how you use it what that stern do so as we might know, the flower class Corvette was used by a number of different countries during and after the war. Quite, actually quite late after the war, they were still being used. So, the orders. The Royal Navy ordered 145 flower class Corvettes in 1939. The first 26 on 25th of July, with a further batch of 30 on 35th, 31st of August. All under the 1939 pre-war program. Following the outbreak of World War II, the British Admiralty ordered another 20 on the 19th of September, all from Heartland and Wolfe, under the 1939 war program as well. This was followed by an order for another for a further 10 flower-class corvettes from other British shipbuilders two days later, and another 18 were ordered on 12th of December, and an additional two on the 15th, again from British shipbuilders. The Royal Navy ordered the last 10 vessels under the 1939 war program from Canadian shipbuilders in January 1940. Thus, by the end of January 1940, a total of 116 ships were building or on its or on order for this initial design. The 10 vessels ordered from Canadian shipbuilders were transferred to the RCN upon completion. You Another like four. <laughs> yeah, the British never saw those ones. Another four vessels were ordered at Smith's Dock Company from, for the French Navy, the first ship being completed for the Free French Naval Forces mid-1940, and the other three being taken over by the Royal Navy, so the British stole them. Another 31 flowers were ordered by the Royal Navy under the 1940 war program, but, oh, sorry, lost my, blanked out, but six of these ordered from Hartland and Wolfe were cancelled on 23rd January 1941. The Royal Navy ordered 27 mod modified flower Ugh. Boy, I lost my place right there. <laughs> Have a drink. Wait, that's good. Wait, that's good. Hang on, hang on. Intermission real quick. 
that yeah. if, if I leave the Zencaster and then rejoin, will it save my audio? Uh, I'm not willing to risk it. Fuck. Okay. Why is that? Stay, uh, leave your mic Good refresh your page. Uh, well, if that, I can't switch. It's not letting me switch my mic on Zencaster, and my mic. Yeah, we're doing. Uh, uh, okay, you know what we're gonna do? Wait, Greg, can you not just switch? God, we're gonna have no. to cut this all out. Uh, yep, Greg, can you not just switch it on your Windows? Uh, stand by. So go to input devices on Windows. In your settings. Actually, we should leave the send text support on the fly. <laughs> Sorry, Callum. I thought it was in my fucking... Because I can hear you guys through my headsets. I thought my mic was in my headset. Actually, I should stop recording for a Okay, microphone check. Actually redo a sentence that I completely and totally fucked up, so I'm good on that. <laughs> nice. Very well, very well. Okay, okay. Actually, hang on. I'm sorry, one more. One more. Pause. All right. Yeah. Where was I? Oh, yeah. Another 31 flowers were ordered by the Royal Navy under the 1940 war program. But six of these were cancelled on 23rd of Jan 1941. The Royal Navy ordered 27 modified flower class corvettes under the 1941 and 42 pro, uh, war programs. The British shipbuilders were contracted to build seven of these vessels under the 1941 program and five under the 42 program. However, two vessels, one from each year, were later cancelled. Additionally, the Royal Navy ordered 15 modified flowers from Canadian shipbuilders under the 41 program, eight of these being transferred to the United States Navy under, reserve lend, under the Reserve Lend Lease. The Royal Canadian Navy ordered 70 original and 34 modified flower class from Canadian shipbuilders. The Canadian Ooh, shipbuilders were... <laughs> the Canadians used the uh, flower extensively. You guys, uh, second to the Royal Navy, you guys love these. The Canadian shipbuilders also built seven original flowers ordered by the United States Navy. However, these vessels were transferred to the Royal Navy under the Lend-Lease program up upon completion, as wartime shipbuilding production in the United States had reached the level where the United States Navy could dispense with vessels that it ordered in Canada. So that's just a real, real roundabout way of saying the British ordered ships from the Canadians who were sending them to the Americans who sent them to Britain. You know, just real roundabout way. It's a procurement moment. Yeah, yeah. The Royal Canadian Navy vessels had several design variations from their Royal Navy counterparts. The bandstand where the aft pom-pom gun was mounted was moved to the rear of the superstructure. The galley was also moved forwards immediately aft of the... No, um, immediately forward of the engine room. Sorry. Shortly after the outbreak of war, the French Navy ordered 18 flower class, 12 from UK dockyards, 2 from, uh, I'm not even going to pronounce that word, but 2 from Dunkirk and 4 from St. Nazaire. Uh, two of the ships were listed as cancelled, but, um, 
but four other ships that were under construction at the time during the fall of, the Fran fall of France were seized by Nazi Germany. Three of these hulls were completed for Kriegsmarine service and commissioned in 1943 to 1944 as the Patrolenboot Ostland Patrolboat. So you can see here on these photos, I've just picked a uh, random selection of flowers that were used by different navies. So you have HMS Buttercup used by the Royal Navy, USS Intensity, PG-93. The Americans... Uh, really didn't want to call their ships flower names. They really didn't. Instead, they chose these real out there, you know, American names, intensity and stuff like that. Yeah, they didn't want to call them the and flower you class because, you know, Americans ain't no hippies. Yeah. Poor men, God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, Amer the Americans, uh, you know, you've got stuff like Snowberry, Erebus, Apostolus, you know, stuff like that. And then you have the... Uh, the United States, where they have Fury, Impulse, <laughs> Saucy. Imagine that you could be on the USS Saucy. There haven't been any issues. So that's, that's kind well, of we should all be so lucky. <laughs> yeah. Um. So, I think now let's uh, let's talk about the fun stuff oh, on the ship, yes. shall we? Yeah. Hey. The fun stuff. Boom. So this slide is showing off everything that the uh, flowers were equipped with. Um, no two, no two flower class corvettes were the same. They're all uh, equipped according to what the crew basically wanted or what was required for their job. Once you got your flower class uh, corvette, you could take it to the shop afterwards, and they would sell you whatever you wanted. Oh, pretty much. You could aftermarket the hell out of your corvette. You know, it's Los Santos, but for the ocean. Yeah, yeah. I think Someone I can name. It. I think I can name everything <laughs> on this slide. Do it. Uh, so we have the 12 pounder. We have the K. Wrong. It's not a 12 pounder? <laughs> no. Wrong. Uh, open sea, well, boy. Continue. <laughs> we have the K gun uh, depth charge projector. 40 millimeter pom pom. Wrong. Two pounder. <laughs> nah, he was right. I was just saying that to mess All right, with him. Uh, we got dual Orlikans, Hedgehogs, and then dual Lewis. Yeah, that can't be a Hedgehog, though. Where's the Matilda? <laughs> yeah. That's, nah, that's the, the Matilda is the bastardized Hedgehog. This is the OG Hedgehog. The only <laughs> bit you got wrong was the gun. And I'll tell you. So the original flower class was fitted with a 4-inch or 102-millimeter oh, gun on the right. bow. 4 inches? Uh, Damn. Okay. That's a bit bigger oh, than, uh, what did you say, 12-pounder? 12-pounder, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it's so it fitted with a 4-inch or 102-millimeter gun on the bow. Oh, no, average. Death charge racks carrying 40 charges. <laughs> so uh, death charge racks carrying 40 charges on the stern, a mine-sweeping winch, and a 2-pounder or 40-millimeter pom-pom gun on the bandstand over the engine room. Due to initial shortages, a pair of Lewis guns were sometimes substituted for the pom-pom, which would have left the ship very vulnerable to aircraft attack, as it as its envisioned role of coastal um, convoy escort and patrol of the North Sea. The long-range endurance of the vessels, coupled with early wartime shortages of larger escort warships, saw flowers assigned to transatlantic convoy escort, where Luftwaffe, Luftwaffe fighter bombers were rarely encountered. 
vessels assigned to the Mediterranean Sea usually had their anti-aircraft capabilities significantly upgraded. Now, some questions the... for you, uh, Callum. Sorry, before we continue. Shoot. Torpedoes. Did they ever carry them? Nope. Or were they above that sort of thing? Okay. They had no, no so flowers were primarily used for escort, which means um, anti-submarine. Yeah. The flowers were actually some of the one of the best anti-submarine ships that um, existed in World War Two. They were armed to the teeth with we'll death charges. Oh, they well, the initial ones had forty, but I think they got up to about seventy sometimes on launches. Damn. Yeah, and those depth charges are big. Yeah. I mean, you see them trying to load it onto that photo. Now. Because they were sub-hunters, they had sub-hunting equipment. Underwater detection capability was provided by a fixed ASDIC dome, A-S-D-I-C. This was later modified to be retractable. Subsequent inventions, such as, such as the high-frequency radio detection finder, also known as the Huff-Duff, because the British just have to name things weird, you know, give it a nickname for some reason. So, Huff-Duff. <laughs> was later added along with various radar systems such as the Type 271 which provided particularly effective in low visibility conditions of the North Atlantic. The flower class has been had been designed for inshore patrol and harbour anti-submarine defence therefore many, many required minor modifications when Allied navies began deploying these vessels as transatlantic convoy escorts. These small warships could be supported by any small dockyard or naval station, so many ships came to have a variety of different weapon systems and design modifications depending on when and where they were refitted. There is really no such thing as a standard flower class corvette. So if you are building one as a model, you can basically do whatever you want to it and no one can tell you otherwise. And when the gatekeepers come to tell you otherwise, you can tell them to fuck off, watch our podcast episode to prove them wrong. Exactly. And totally yes, that is what our down. podcast is here for. I'm building mine off yeah, of the gatekeepers. Which one? Yeah, I hear. Get out. You, you, you're not customizing it? No. Well, Jack, are you not slamming the uh, <laughs> the Corvette? <laughs> yeah, what? <laughs> Get out of here. Yeah. Well, actually, I had the uh, HMCS Snowberry on the other slide, so. I know, I saw it. Looking quite schmixy. So, uh, still on armament, 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 you know what I'm talking about. Say it again. Shut up. (laughs) (laughs) So, several of the major changes that vessels in the class underwent are indicated below, which I'm going to talk about, in a typical chronological order, which we're going to go for. So, in no particular order except for this one which is chronological. Original twin-mast configuration changed to single-mast in the front of the bridge, then moved to the back of the back of the bridge for improved visibility. Heavy mine-sweeping gear removed for deep-sea escort and to improve range. Galley relocated to midships. Extra depth-charged storage racks were fitted to the stern. Later, even more depth-charged um, were stowed along walkways, so they just kept on adding and adding and adding more explosives. The Hedgehog fitted, was fitted with a, to enable remote a, attacks. And for those who don't know what the Hedgehog system is, it's uh, 
similar to a depth charge, only these were more a cluster of uh, how many? About 24 or so mortars? Uh, I believe yeah, bombs. around 20, 24. Yeah. And they uh, fired in the general direction of where you thought a submarine was, and they just and they sunk down in a uh, large area, which uh, was a bit more effective than a single depth charge. They didn't do as much damage as a depth charge on a direct hit, but they, were, they improved your chances of actually damaging it. Because if you damaged a submarine or a U-boat, they had to surface, especially a U-boat, which technically isn't a submarine. But we can talk about that later if you want. Pardon? What do you mean it's not a submarine? A U-boat is not a submarine. At all. It's a submersible. (laughs) It's not a hill to die on, it's a fact. (laughs) A U-boat, a U-boat or under... Underwater boot, or however the fucking Germans say it, is a submersible, not a submarine. Uh, they can only last. They can't. They can only last about a day or two underwater, and then they have to surface. Um, especially the earlier ones. So yeah, and what makes it a submersible as opposed to a submarine is its its speed when it was surfaced was faster than its speed when it's underwater. That's one thing that um, submarines are. They were, Submarines are faster underwater than they are at the surface. U-boats are the other way around. So, U-boat is not a submarine. Anyway. You learned yeah. something today. <laughs> yeah. So, anyway. I shall keep going on the list, shall I? So, surface radar fitted in a lantern housing. Uh, various changes to the bridge were done extra twin Lewis guns mounted on the bridge or engine room and Orlikin 20 mils were fitted two to the bridge wings Um, so Lewis guns either had two the twins could carry two either 47 round drums or if you had the extenders it carried 97 yeah so you'd have you'd be constantly reloading i see now the issue with this <laughs> so with this with these uh weapons and stores uh so we talk about just how the uh flowers operated <laughs> in the north atlantic what are you two giggling about well i think this is a good time before we continue join the discord there will be a link to it in <laughs> our uh, in our description of this video and in the spotify continue please um a tiny bit yeah. You sound you sound like you're on a radio. It's ear rapey but quiet. Yeah, it's like ear rapey but quiet. It's like the what you're not going for. Hold on, I'm gonna pause the recording. Yeah. <laughs> so operations of the Flower Class Corvette. So Flower Class Corvettes were used extensively by both the Royal Navy and the Royal Canadian Navy in the Warlong Battle of the Atlantic. 
They also saw limited service elsewhere in the Royal Navy, as well as the United States Navy, and several other allied navies, such as the Royal Netherlands Navy, the Royal Norwegian Navy, the Royal um, Hellenic Navy. That's Greek, is it? Hellenic? Is that how you pronounce it? Close enough. The Free French Naval Forces, the Royal Indian Navy, and the Royal New Zealand Navy. The Belgium Navy used some of these vessels during World War II and have continued to use flower names for their mine hunters to this day. Most Royal Navy flower ships drew their officers and crew from the Royal Navy Reserve and the Royal Navy Volunteer Reserve, also known as the RNVR. Many Royal Navy flowers had captains drawn from the Merchant Navy. Uh, fun fact, my granddad was actually in the Mer Merchant Navy, uh, joined when he was 14. So, yeah. 14. Yeah. Yep. Left high school, Damn. joined the Merchant Navy when he, was when he was 14. Fucking tits. Yeah. The good old days. He actually got posted. He went to uh, places like Egypt and Egypt and stuff. Onto the Nile. Cool oh, stories. Nice. Yeah. That is cool. So... This one's just for Greg, because uh, we all know Greg served quite a bit of his times at the Marines on, uh, what was it, the USS? I uh, spent eight weeks on the USS America. And, and what was that like? Uh, extremely boring. Well, I can tell you one thing. After I tell you about the conditions on board a flower class... You will be very thankful for your experience. Oh, trust me, I already am. Like I was on a newer ship. I already know my time was better than most, especially in the current <laughs> fleet. But uh, yeah, still sucked. Yeah. Well. So, service on flowers in the North Atlantic was typically cold, wet, monotonous, and very uncomfortable. Every dip of the forecastle into an oncoming wave was followed by a cascade of water into the well, the well deck amidships. Men at action stations were drenched with spray and water entered living spaces through hatches open to access ammunition magazines. Interior decks were constantly wet and condensation dripped from the overheads. The head, or sanitary toilet, this is going to be a good one. The toilet was drained by a straight pipe to the ocean. And a reverse flow of the... Yeah. Can you see where this is oh, going to go? Jack. It's straight piped. <laughs> so, the toilet had a straight pipe to the ocean. It's straight piped. Yeah. So, a reverse flow of icy North Atlantic <gasps> water would cleanse the backside of those using it during rough weather. Basically, you had the world's worst bidet. <laughs> I don't think it would cleanse. I think it would just penetrate. <laughs> oh, you imagine that Salt just water. sitting on the toilet and then just getting nailed from under from the from the North Atlantic. You got like a Salt crab water. crawling up in there. Probably. <laughs> yeah. Ooh. Now Ooh. it gets worse. I think I'd, I'd rather but, take my chances shitting off the deck. No, that would be worse, actually. That would be worse. Oh, no. <laughs> and it gets worse. By, 1941's, by 1941, Corvettes carried twice as many crewmen as the, anticip 
as anticipated in the original design. Men slept on lockers or tabletops or any other dark place that offered little, a little bit of warmth. The inability to store perishable food meant a reliance on preserved foods such as corned beef and powdered potato for every meal. Oh, I see no problems here. <laughs> Break out the spam, boys. Let's go. <laughs> the flowers were nicknamed the Pekingese of the ocean. They had a reputation of having poor sea handling characteristics, most often rolling in heavy seas with 80 degree rolls, 40 degrees each side of the upright, being fairly common. Now, if you don't know, oh, on, a, on a boat, 40 degrees of roll is a lot. Like, not even my dad's sailing yacht does that. Wait, that's almost halfway to being on its side. Yeah. 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 Oh, no, thank you. Um, it was said that a flower ship, a flower class, would even roll on wet grass because of uh, its tap characteristics. Characteristics. Ugh, fuck. You know the word. I'm not going to say it. Characteristics. Thank you. Many crewmen so suffered severe motion. Wheels. Yeah. Many crewmen suffered severe motion sickness for a few weeks until they acclimatized to the constant rolling. Although yeah, they also the- probably suffered. They also probably suffered from emotional damage by being raped by the sea every time they tried to take a shit. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> All that corned beef as well, they'd have the worst shits in history. Oh, <laughs> uh, those poor bastards. Now, even though it had very poor sea handling character, oh, fuck off. The flowers <laughs> were... <laughs> hey, do, a, do a drink, it'll help steady the, the nerves. <sighs> do a shot. The flowers were extremely seaworthy. I got you, I got you. <laughs> No allied sailor no, was ever yeah, lost overboard. I have the good stuff. <laughs> Ugh, God. Now, as flowers were used to combat submarines and U-boats, might as well talk about just how they did that. So, a typical action by a flower encountering a surface U-boat during convoy escort duties was to run directly at the submarine forcing it to dive and thus limiting its speed and maneuverability. Hence why I said, a U-boat is not a submarine, it's a submersible. It, sub, U-boats under, underwater kind of suck. Mm-hmm. The Corvette would then keep the submarine down and preoccupied with avoiding death charge attacks long enough, long enough to allow the convoy to pass safely. The 16-knot top speed of the flower-class ships made effective pursuit of a surface U-boat which ran at 17 knots, impossible. Though it was adequate at manoeuvring around submerged U-boats or convoys, both of which ran at a typical maximum of 8 knots, and sometimes much less in poor weather. The low speed also made it difficult for flowers to catch up with the convoy after its action against a U-boat. This technique was hampered when the Kriegsmarine began deploying its U-boats in wolfpack attacks which were intended to overwhelm the escort warships of a convoy and allow at least one of the U-boats to attack a merchant's vessel. Upgrades and sensors... Yep. That sounds like some gay shit they'd say nowadays. Like a furry furry convention or something. (laughs) (laughs) You would know, Greg. Ezra, you need to to send him that costume, eh? 
<laughs> oh, dude, I'll, I'll send a picture of uh, me in it. <laughs> Ezra, you gotta yeah, have a picture of a podcast. You gotta have a furry behind you. <laughs> Come on. All right, no. continue. I'll just I'll send the pig. Um... <laughs> now, upgrades and sensors and armament for the flowers, such as radar, HF, DF, depth charge projectors, the ASDIC, meant that small warships were well equipped, to, well equipped to detect and defend against such attacks. But the tactical advantage often lay with the attackers, who could operate a cat-and-mouse series of attacks intended to draw the defending flower off station. Success for the flowers, therefore should be measured in terms of tonnage protected rather than U-boats sunk. Typical reports of convoy actions by these craft include numerous instances of U-boat detection near a convoy, followed by a brief engagement using the guns or depth charges, and a rapid return to station as another U-boat took advantage of this initial skirmish to attack the unguarded convoy. Continuous actions of this kind against a numerically superior U-boat pack demanded considerable seamanship skills from all concerned, and was very wearing on the cruise. Uh-huh. <laughs> 36 ships in the class were lost during World War II, due to many due to enemy action, some to collision with Allied warships and merchant ships. One, sunk in shallow water, was raised and repaired and used. But, so, 36 um, of the vessels... Lost to enemy, to enemy action, 22 were torpedoed by U-boats, 5 were mined, and 4 were sunk by aircraft. However, 36 ships lost. The Corvette, the Flower Class Corvette, was credi- credited with participating in the sinking of 47 German and 4 Italian submarines. So wow. they sunk... Oh, that's not bad. So as a percentage, they sunk the most U-boats. They so, suck the sauerkrauts and the bread boys. Nah. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. I'll be right back, guys. Pause the recording. No, don't pause the recording. Keep it going. Well, shit. Okay. Okay, then. Okay, then. Down. So, construction of the flower class was superseded towards the end of the war as larger ships concentrated larger shipyards concentrated on river-class frigates and smaller yards on the improved castle-class corvette design. The flower-class represented fully half of all Allied convoy escort vessels in the North Atlantic during the Second World War. So, although they might have been uh, characteristic, they might have been bad at being in North Sea and stuff like that, they, they did the job they were supposed to do. They sunk a lot of U-boats. So, the flowers did their job, and they did it well. So, it's good to go. Mm. So, now we've talked about uh, flowers in the war. Quite a few of them were used uh, after the war. Oh, look at that paint scheme! Isn't that life? That's lovely. Yeah, oh, it's a splinter camo. Bro, it's black and white. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, Jack, do you know why they painted ships like that? I have no idea, but it looks sick. So So the reason you paint a ship like that wasn't to try and camouflage it as such. Um, To shoot ship to ship, 
required a lot of calculations. You had to know the distance for your shells and stuff like that. They've got me in like a little basement in there. Yep, trying to calculate it. Calculator. Yep. So what the splinter camouflage did was it broke up the it broke up the outline of the ship. That way, they couldn't gauge how fast it was going, the direction it was going, how long it was, the type of ship. Basically, it did everything to just disrupt the flow of information, trying to identify what it is so they could calculate where to land the shells. So it just makes it more complicated. Yeah, yeah. It just made it harder. They couldn't identify it. So basically, on the bridge, what they've got, they, this is back in 1941, right? They had a PC running cold waters, and you had to use your sonar to calculate your solution on the ship. <laughs> the paint scheme would reduce your solution about 10%. Yeah. And also, another thing about the, uh, the design of um, flowers, they did not have a closed bridge. They had an open, they had an open top bridge. So you imagine middle of the night, in winter, in the North Atlantic, you're on duty and you're in an open bridge. Oh, God. Yeah, fuck that. It yeah. was just uh, flowers. Either. A lot of Canadian destroyers uh, didn't have closed bridges either. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we're so, I mean, Canadian, it, we're used to it. Yeah. Yeah, you just, you just see a raw Canadian flower and there'll just be that one guy in shorts and jandals. Just be like, ah, it's not that cold. (laughs) So, post-war. So, the relatively small flowers were among the first warships to to be declared surplus. I would have loved to grab one of these as surplus. $20. (laughs) 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 I know what I've got. (laughs) No lowballs. So, they had seen years of hard service in the North Atlantic and were made obsolete by the numerous destroyer escorts and frigates that entered service in the latter part of the war. 32 vessels from the Royal Navy, Royal Canadian Navy and Royal uh, United States Navy were transferred to Argentina, Chile, the Dominican Republic, Greece, India, the Republic of Ireland, South Africa and Venezuela. Did you say the Royal Navy of the United States? Almost. I corrected myself. About to say, there's no goddamn way we are royalty. We are dirtbags. <laughs> so, these were typically operated, according to the original design, as coastal patrol vessels, many with many serving until 1970s. The Irish Navy bought three flowers in 1946. Uh, any... The Lim... The L.E. Oh, God's sake, I hate these names. L.E. the L.E. Clayona and the L.E. Maeve. Fucking oh, some of these names, Jesus. The fledgling navy had intended to buy three more corvettes as well as a number of surplus minesweepers, but severe budget restrictions cancelled these plans, leaving the original three to serve alone through the 1950s and 60s, despite antiquated armament, poor accommodation, and maintenance problems. Taken out of service in 1968, between 1968 and 1970, and scrapped shortly afterwards, replaced by ton class ton class minesweepers before building before the building of a similar vessel size, the L.E. Deirdre. 
110 surplus flowers were sold for commercial use. These saw various careers as mercantile freighters, smugglers, tugs, weather ships, and whalers. The remainder were scrapped. Of particular interest is the story of the HMCS Sudbury. She was declared surplus by the RCN and sold as a towboat specialising in deep sea salvage. In November 1955, she rescued the freighter Macedonia in the North Pacific, towing the vessel for over one month through severe weather, becoming one of the most famous salvage ships of all time. One you month. say it was called the Macedonia? Um, Macedonia. M-A-K-E-D-O-N-I-A. I guess it's Macedonia? I don't know. I don't care. And just like the real town of Sudbury, the ship was must have been desolate, cold, and generally lifeless. Probably. Yeah, <laughs> fitting that it's called the Sudbury, the whole town needs salvaged. <laughs> Declared surplus. <laughs> so, the surplus RCN uh, flowers, Norsid and Buham... Harness, harness, whatever. Oh, Bohanoi. The what? I think that's who said the Bohanoi. Whatever, it's that some, one. It's some town yeah. in Quebec. It's a bad place. Good McDonald's, though. <laughs> <laughs> so those two ships were sold as mercantile freighters, but were subsequently acquired in 1946 by the, by the Mossad. Real... <sighs> no. Shoot me. ISIS took it over, okay? Wait, wait, Mossad took it over. <laughs> <laughs> you see one of these sitting in the middle of Afghanistan in like a poppy field? <laughs> Not so, dude a... in the turban is trying to ram this into a dry dock. <laughs> a, it was a branch of the Jewish Defense Association. Yeah, I know. And, shit. And the, yeah, they uh, needed something after the Holocaust. In the British Mandate oh. for Palestine. Mm. So this one, they organized Jewish, they organized Jewish immigration from Europe into Palestine in violation of unilateral British restrictions. The corvettes were intercepted in the Mediterranean Sea during the summer of 1946 by the destroyer Venus and interned in Palestine. After Israel became independent in 1948, these commercial ships were commissioned into the Israeli Navy as the warships Hashmon, Hashama, and Hagana. Respectively. Yeah, whatever they know. Whatever. Allied navies disposed of their flowers so quickly following the war, the Royal Navy could not supply a single vessel to play to play Compass Rose in the 1953 film production of Nicholas Montserrat's novel, novel The Cruel Sea. The Royal Hel Helena... Oh, in go. Oh, go ahead. Um, oh, interesting fact about that. The movie Greyhound with Tom Hanks... The the movie with Tom Hanks, uh, Greyhound. It's based off of that book. Is it actually? Oh yeah, yeah it is. Yeah. Huh. I will not watch it then, because the 1953 movie, The Cruel Sea, is my favorite of all time, and no one can change my mind. I mean, Tom it's Hanks an okay movie. Good. Um, yeah. Tom Hanks can change your mind. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I um I actually I was on that ship for a little bit for like a day. I have a ton of pictures. Yeah. So 
Instead, the Royal, the Royal Hel Hellenic Navy supplied the uh, what was formerly known as the HMS Corypus for the uh, role, and then she was scrapped. The only survivor of the entire class is Sackville, which is probably the one you're talking about, Ezra. And that is oh, owned, by, owned by the Canadian Naval Memorial Trust. She was laid up in reserve in March 1946 and converted in 1952 as a research vessel for the Canadian Department of Marine and Fisheries, a role she served in until the early 1980s when she was acquired by the Trust. She has been restored to her wartime appearance and serves in the summer months as a museum ship in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Interesting well, uh, thing with the Sackville, just before we continue. Um, so the Canadian uh, Royal Canadian Navy today has a bunch of frigates, and one of the frigates was actually painted the same uh, splinter scheme as the Sackville was, and uh, that's the actual operational scheme it's in. It's basically the only ship in the world now that's using that scheme, or at least in NATO. Hmm. That's cool. Yeah, just a little, little trivia for you there. Yeah, so. Sackville's Sack, oh, presence in Halifax is considered very appropriate given the port was an important North American convoy assembly port during the war. Sackville so made wait, her, wait, wait. Yo. It's, um, it's still in Halifax? It's a museum ship in Halifax right now? Yep. Okay, you know I could try to, to visit Jack. it, take some pictures, yeah. I was going to say, okay, uh, right. didn't you just say you were going to go to uh, Nova Scotia? Yeah. Don't don't say that on the podcast though. But yeah, <laughs> all, all fans. the fans, all the fans are gonna mob him in Halifax. I know I'm gonna get robbed or something for my all seventy dollar airsoft money. <laughs> you and you uh, enjoying that food there, Greg? Sorry, I'll fuck off, Ezra. So Sackville typically hosts several dozen RCN veterans on the on the first Sunday of May on the commemoration of the Battle of the Atlantic ceremonies. So and has also participated in several barriers at sea for dispersing the ashes of RCN veterans of the Battle of the Atlantic at this location. Imagine being on a ship for your service that you fucking hated, and then your family decided to send you off on the ship you hated. <laughs> <laughs> and then so in the slide you'll see on the left we have the HMSAS Protea also known as K51 uh, that was used that was converted into a survey ship uh, and then later into a fishing trawler and it was renamed Justin seems like a bit of a downer that you know it's like that's a like, basic the, ass name it's like what's the name it's like oh this is the uh, HMSAS Protea and what is the name now Justin. <laughs> our Prime Minister. And then you'll yeah. see on the right-hand side, the L, the L.E. Mac. Does anyone want to try and pronounce that one? The Maka? Yeah. Maka. Yeah, Which I was, think it's just the Maka. The yeah. Maka. Which was formerly known as the... Uh, Maka. <laughs> so that was formerly uh, known as the HMS Borage, or K120. Uh, that was used by the Irish Navy after World War II. This ship had the honour in September 1948 of carrying the remains of William Butler Yeats from... Is it Yeats or Yates? Whatever. I think it's Yeats. 
Yeah. Uh, so carried her. So carried this guy from France to Drumcliff County, Sligo, for reburial. So even even after the war, the uh, flowers still did some pretty impressive stuff. So if we uh, go to the next slide, you'll see there are a bunch of books written by people who served on flowers. And uh, if you read some of these, you'll probably find out a lot more than what I was able to tell you in this podcast, I can tell you that. <laughs> the Navy SEAL version for ships. <laughs> Pretty much. So just just a couple of them. You've got Alex H. Cherry wrote Yankee RN, the story of a Wall Street banker who volunteered for active duty in the Royal Navy, including details of flower operations. Um, Hugh Garner with Storm Below provides a detailed account of flower class corvettes and the stresses of shipboard life during World War II. Uh, of course, you have... Where is his name? Well, you've got, you've got The Cruel Sea, which I need to read the book, seen the movie, don't want to see Greyhound. And if we go to the next one. And we have... The Cruel Sea, the movie, filmed in 1953, and as we said before. Now, this one, little uh, little trivia for you on this movie. So this one is, so The Cruel Sea is actually my favorite movie of all time, the 1953 black and white. So, a little fun fact about this one, um, when filming, uh, when they're doing filming, because they're on an actual Corvette, they had all these ship pilots uh, crouched down below the uh, deck so they could tell the actors what they needed to do uh, without being in a shot. And there's one there's one scene of them pulling the uh, ship into dock, you know, going into the harbour and all of that. The pilots got the actors to do it a little bit too quickly. Uh, they came in a bit too hard and heavy and it was a bit of a uh, disaster trying to uh, bring it in. And... They got in serious trouble. the The whole production got in trouble with the harbor master for that one, because they uh, they brought the ship in way too fast. And yeah, so if we go to the last last uh, Ooh, slide, we have some models. Ooh, and hey. Ezra, you can probably tell us some. Uh, yeah. So Ravel has the main kits. Uh, we have one seventy second scale and one forty four. So, number one, do not buy the Ravel 172nd scale. The 144th scale kit is actually amazing, but don't get the 172nd because it's a rebox of like a 1970s Matchbox kit. So the details oh. are super toy-like. Oh. Yeah. Oh. Um, <laughs> that sounds wonderful. Oh. And then even, uh, is that Black Cat or Black Dog? That one in the uh, middle it's there. It's probably Black Cat. Yeah. yeah, they do a one to. S what scale is that? One to seven hundred. I think that maybe a bit bigger. Yeah, is it yeah. is it a three D printed kit or resin? I think it's a resin one. Oh, it might be yeah. Black Dog then. Yeah, Black Cat is three D printed. Black Cat, Black Dog. They they were very uh, original with their names, weren't they? Very, very good marketing. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. So we'll that was the Flower Class break, Corvette. Um, I doubt you learned yeah, anything, but, um, you know, that's not really what this podcast is here for. Progress, so <laughs> stick around. <laughs>
Well, thank you so much, Calum. I mean, I, I, I know yeah, thank you, you guys, I learned a lot. Instead of doing the hill to die on this week, we thought we'd do something a little bit different, and that is the hobby news. So we thought we would go around to all the places that we get our news about the, all the latest happenings in the scale modeling industry, and we would communicate those happenings to you. So we all found some stuff. Yep. Cool. No one's found anything. Awesome. <laughs> So, uh, the first little news item is that AK Interactive is getting into the 35th scale business with uh, some full kits. They're releasing. Oh, I, I want that yeah. Puma. No, oh, you likewise. don't. It's a rebox of the old Dragon kit, and it's Thanks expensive as fuck. It. Wow. Wait, is it? Yeah. Yeah. Dude, nothing AK. Way to steal the thunder, bro. Dude, Damn nothing it. that AK Interactive does is original or good. So, I mean, like, don't be too excited. Yeah, they rip okay, off ammo. Uh, Please sponsor you. <laughs> <laughs> so that and so that's all that the Puma is is a uh, reboxing, basically. All the Puma is is a reboxing with even worse box art. However, it is thirty fifth scale AK. The other two things we're coming out with are these uh, FJ four three. I think those are Land Rovers. No, those are to yeah. Toyotas. Yeah, those. Oh no, FJ. Yeah, those are Toyotas. Those are Yoders. But yeah, they're coming out with two Yoders, um, not unlike the main technicals. One's got a D uh, Dushka, and the other one's just kind of like a hard top. Um, no release date on these, though, but uh, they were released at Scale Model World, which was a few days ago. Hmm. Do we have a uh, price yet? No, but you know, you know, AK. I mean, the Dragon Kit yeah, for the no. uh, Boomer was not cheap to begin with. Which is really unfortunate. Um, as well, um, again, a lot of this is coming from Scale Model World. The uh, Tacom is doing a lot in one to sixteen scale. Um, they're releasing their new uh, Kleiner Pan Panzer Befel Swagen One, uh, or the SDKF said two six five, and that is basically. It does correct me if I'm wrong. That's the command variant of the. Of the yes, Panzer it one. is. Yep, and they're doing yep. that in sixteenth uh, scale. Um, also, again, on the hot on the heels of their Panzer One chassis, they've done doing the Panzer Jaeger oh. 1B with the 75. Yeah. Yeah, they're it's also beautiful. doing the Willys Jeep. Dennis, Dennis, Dennis. Not only is that a 75mm gun, but the Stuck 40 is the gun from the Stug 3. Oh my god, guys, did you know that it's from the Stug 3? <laughs> See, we need, we yeah. need uh, Mr. Sushi to do some squeaking. And then you do that voice. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, so. Oh, that V2, yep. though. So, <laughs> even more from Tacom, we've got a bit more 35th and 72nd. So, first up, you have the VT 1 2, which is uh, it was a strange um, tank destroyer type thing that the Germans uh, thought up. Uh, no, it's just. Uh, a box with two guns in it, basically, and it was uh, controlled with the um, steering, and it even had uh, hydro pneumatic um, suspension, so it could aim up and down as well. They put it on bags. Yep, yep. <laughs> I've actually, was, I've we need to do an episode on that. Tank. Yeah, we need, we need to. An episode I've, on that. 
I've got a photo of that. I saw the I saw the prototype at Bovington. It is weird. Oh, um, can I just say something about the V two one two for our Go. Canadian listeners? So, Canadian boys, are you tired of making the same old Leopard two A six kit from Afghanistan? What if I told you that when they were considering what Leopard tank to buy back in the two thousands, there was very serious consideration about the V T one two. I'm not even kidding. I Wait, actually, I didn't even I know this. Substan- I cannot substantiate this claim because Ken Medic told me, but I I have no source for this. But it happened. I believe him. Um, Ken so Medic this, is a source. This is he is a source. Came damn yeah. close to being what we had in Afghanistan. Well noted for being perfect for a tank with. This type Jesus. of aiming system. But yeah, that was the plan. So please, continue. <laughs> That's um, crazy. So basically, if you buy the VT-1-2, um, you can put it in Canadian colors then as a what-if. <coughs> also, they are releasing the VK-100.01P, also known as the Mammoth, or Mammoth. And in 72nd, the Silber Vogel sub-orbital bomber and with an atomic payload so this is a very much a German uh, 1946 what if atomic bomber so TACOM are definitely keeping on the trend of weird and wonderful aren't they good job I would make buy that kit personally I would love to have the VK 101 that thing looks sick oh no I'm talking about the uh, sub-orbital bomber I think it's weird. Wanna... You love you love German stuff. Yeah, that's a bit too German for me. <laughs> oh, <laughs> German. oh, shut yeah, the such. fuck up! <laughs> <laughs> too German. <laughs> There's no such thing. You literally have the Fourth Reich. There is nothing too German for you. <laughs> well, you won't take that. Well, cancel. well, oh, so a regular Yamato turn. I see nothing wrong here. Moving on. We, we all know about Hobby Lake Japan here, right? You only mention it 20 times an episode. What, me and Hobby Lake Japan? I'm kidding. Well, I am getting... Uh, HLJ, where's my check? I specifically requested <laughs> it to be in 10s and 20s. Okay. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so the Beaver Corporation, which actually runs HLJ, they're partnering again with TACOM. Imagine that. Imagine my shock. To build a 72 scale Super Yamato 51 centimeter main gun turret. So, we all know that they made, Tacom made the uh, Bruno, they made the Bismarck turret, they made the uh, Yamato turret, and I think it was an American one off the Missouri. But now, Missouri, the fictional yeah. Super Yamato turret. Uh, the, Super y- the Super Yamato was actually a thing, it was planned on being built around 1944, um, but, but basically it was never built due to cost. But this is going to be coming out, and yeah, it looks quite nice. Also, uh, a detail on Wonder models and R2 miniatures are releasing some more resin stuff for <coughs> the Tamiya F14 and one to 48 that scale. That is sweet. Yeah, that's gonna that be nice. Landing gear is wow. beautiful. I would build the kit for the landing gear alone. Same. How many parts do you think? You'd build well, that, like, and everyone would look at it, and go, "Why is the landing gear like so detailed, and the rest is not?" <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, yeah, Greg, I think these are only like, I think these are one piece, actually. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think they're bigger. And uh, Meng, they are build, delivering us with two new kits. The first one is the Soviet T-72B3M with the Hell yes. And the uh, useless egg carton armor. 
I'm quite excited to build one of those. That'll be fun. Did Callum just get nerfed? What the fuck? Nah, he's still on the... Uh... Oh, okay, there he is. Yeah. Yeah, I'm back, I'm back. That was weird. Show that beautiful face, Callum. <laughs> and then as well, they're doing uh, yet another FA-18 um, in 48 scale. This one is going to be an F variant from the Bounty Hunters. They are milking that Luke kit for all take, they can get out I of don't it. like... I don't like the Bounty Hunter decals. I don't like the Bounty Hunter decals. <laughs> I'm excited <laughs> okay, for that D-72. I'm going to eventually get it. This kit, I am... 100% buying. It's beautiful. It yeah. looks like a fucking hummingbird. Yeah, so Atalari, they have made a name for themselves with their F-35s. They've done it in 32 scale first, then 72 scale, and now they're doing it in 48. And uh, yeah, this, these are some uh, test shots we've got of it. Um, it's going to come with Royal Air Force, United States, and uh, Italian markings. And it's oh, done a little bit nice. of photo watch for the seatbelt. I will say, um, based on my experience with newer Atalari kits, this might actually be all right. Maybe. How much is it, you think? I'm going to probably say probably going to be somewhere around 60, 70 Canadian. Okay. Ooh. Yeah. And finally, in 35th scale, border model, and this is something that we just found out literally right before the uh, we recorded. They're releasing a 35th scale B5N2 with a full interior. Wow, Ooh, that is so nice. It's got that stretched skin look on it. Oh, yeah. You said yeah. that's in uh, 35th scale, right? That's not a typo. That is 35th. I double, triple checked. That's going to be a big bitch that will eventually go into my basement. <laughs> <laughs> so the B5N2, that's the Kate, isn't it? I believe so. Yep. That is the yeah. That's awesome. Uh, I found this one for Jack. <clears throat> so Gas Patch hell? Models is in 48. <laughs> it is a 3D print print of a Schlepper, a tow and recovery vehicle for the ME163B. So that thing looks weird, but if you want to do a diorama like for it. the for a 48 ME163, that will probably be your go to, your go to. So. Is that, little, uh, that's, yep. that's just the recovery vehicle, yeah? Yeah, just the recovery vehicle. Right. But it looks pretty cool. Yeah, it's it neat. looks extremely nice. The We're good for a diorama. Uh, Airfix are continuing with the uh, 48th, so they are releasing the North American F-86 F-40 Sabre. <gasps> JDM! It's got JSDF markings. <laughs> I want yep. the Avro Anson. <laughs> the Avro's. So. Yep. Uh, so yeah. they're so they're also releasing re releasing the Mark One Avro Anson. Although at the moment it's still in CAD renderings, I believe. And they are also uh, releasing the Supermarine Spitfire F Mark. What is that the XVIII? So that's Mark Eighteen. And looks like Dude, it's going to have uh, rockets on it. Calum, that's pretty cool. What do you want? So that would be the cool, but I want the Avro. Yeah. yeah, but that's so that Spitfire would be late enough that would have the five-bladed prop and Griffin engines, not the Merlin. Hmm. Oh wow, Caleb, I want to make Yo. that with you. How how much do you want to bet that these new sabers can be just as ridiculously bad as the uh, Canada saber they made? Uh, how bad is the uh, the other one? 
trench lines. We're talking the the, the panel lines are tr- World War One trenches, bro. Oof. Uh, I mean, it's new Airfix. New Airfix is actually pretty good. Um, like I bought, I built, bought and built the uh, Wellington Mark One, the Mark One A, and that's really good. Like the the moldings on that one was really good. So um, like brand new Airfix is actually pretty reliable nowadays. Yeah. Uh, ICM, uh, also, there's a lot of 48s being released nowadays. Um, ICM have the Ki-21IB, also known as the Sally, a Japanese heavy bomber. So this is going to have uh, completely new molds and, yeah, new everything. Wow. Shout out to ICM really, doing this, yeah. despite what's going on in Ukraine. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I really want this one as well. The, uh, the Sally... Heavy bombers looks cool. Plus, there's just Japanese not enough uh, Japanese bombers around. Oh, we, oh I trust me, Mister Tamiya yeah, and I will true. be fixing that very soon. <laughs> uh, special hobby as well is in forty eighth with the Cybel Si two hundred four E. So this is a German night bomber and a trainer. And I also want this one because it That's looks weird cool. as fuck. <clears throat> it looks cool. It looks yeah. like an ATU 111. A little it's bit. It kind of. Someone gave it math. Yeah, it looks like in, at the front it's HE 111. At the back it's Dornier, DO 17. And then the engines look like the Focke-Wulf 189. You know, the. Uh, Twin boom reconnaissance. Yep. It looks like a three-way love child. Oh, and don't forget the JU, uh, what is it, the JU-78 transport in the middle. Yep, yep. This is what inbred looks like, kids. Don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh. Oh, oh yo! Yo, all it's missing now is it's... our street cutting it in half. Oh, that's true. <laughs> yeah, so um, it's going to be in most likely 30-bit scale. From Arma models, boo Russia, but yay this new kit. Look at that. Look at that render. Bro, if that's going to be in 35th, I'm getting to build it, and I'm going to make it look like it's uh, being captured by Ukrainians. Yeah, funny, Greg, yeah. that's the exact same idea. What's the designation on that one? It's the KA... 52. 52. That's right, yeah. Alligator. Is it the alligator? I think it's the uh, alligator, yeah. <coughs> yeah. But that thing looks so good. That does look really good. Arma models. Wait, they they've been doing aircraft for the longest. This is a different Arma. <laughs> there are multiple Arma models. What the heck? Yeah, I had to get this from a website that was all in Russian. So, <laughs> so is it actually viruses. is it actually like reliable? Like not to joke yeah, it's around actually reliable. You. Okay. Because you're getting my hopes up. <laughs> it's going to be released in either 132nd scale, 135th, and 148th, but most of the votes are leaning towards 135th. So, Uh-oh. Oh, no. Oh, there we go. <laughs> I hope it's 35th. That'd be nice. I know. Yeah, too. that'd be Make everything amazing. 35th. Standardized 35th. Yep. 
Well. And that seems to be all for the news, so keep an eye out for those kits. We'll be back with nice. some more news. Alrighty. And what have we been working on this week, guys? Oh, well, ladies first. Right? <laughs> um, yeah, it's for me. I've just been finishing up that second Gundam model, and uh, yeah, had a little bit of fun weathering it up. You know, tried using those to be a weathering masters, and they turned out very well. For uh, trick is, don't use water with them; just dry brush them. And now I've been working hmm. on a forty-eight scale to be a A6M3. First plane in a while. Like you know, I'm gonna actually put effort in. Glad to see it, dude. What kind? Of, what kind of uh, camo scheme yeah, you going for that? Great. Just that the uh, kind of like that white gray green. Mm. Oh, nice. Mm. Yeah, I think the Hinamaru will stick out nicely, so that when people are walking by the cabinet, they can be reminded of uh, where the allegiances of the hobby store lie. <laughs> oh, <God>. <laughs> <laughs> that Gundam looks so good, though. Oh, thank you. I actually have a passion egg for it as well, if I can find it. it went somewhere. Nice. Alright, so this is uh this is all my stuff. How to fit it all in one slide. Uh on the left hand side you got the V twenty two Osprey that I did. It's a commission build for a guy I work with, basically landing in the desert. Uh and then in the center, you got my work in progress. Uh, what was once my uh, Sicily diorama, I'm making it the battle for Cherbourg uh, during the Normandy campaign. Uh, basically primed everything black, did the uh, AK, what's this shit called? The uh, AK weathering base base. Well, weathering base, Dennis. <gasps> Fuck you. Yeah. Really? Yeah, get your shit really? right. You don't work at a hobby really? store. Huh? Yeah. Uh, but yeah, first time using it, put the paste on the buildings. It was fun. Uh, then on the bottom right, uh, I got a job at a certain wannabe hobby store that I was able to get a really good discount on the Mitchell. So I went ahead and snagged that. And the top right, I got some seafoam and then uh, the infamous uh, foot cramping picture Dallas. when I was working with I Dennis heard the screams. I heard the, like, the pain and agony he took to make that photo happen. It hurt. <laughs> tell you what, it hurt. <laughs> Greg, I'm glad to see that. I took you to the dark side with the sea foam. You did. I'm excited to use it. I'm going to use it on the Cherbourg diorama first. Nice. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, well, back to your Ooh. slide, that B-25 Mitchell... I've built that, and despite its age, it's honestly a pretty good kit. If you can look past the raised panel lines, I've yeah, I look. Oh, that's, that's a big thing to look past. <laughs> yeah, honestly, that's fuck. Because <laughs> the the osprey I did had horrible panel lines. Like to be fair, it's a very shitty kit. I've got the newer one in my stash that I'm going to do for myself. But the one I built yeah. was made in like seventy one, I think, and it is or not seventy one, eighty one, I think. And it is horrible. Absolutely horrible. Mm. The kit sucks. It fits awful. Panel lines are not like non-existent. So we'll see with the Mitchell. God All right. Damn. Well, um, this week I've decided to do aircraft for some weird reason. So here we have my finished accurate miniatures 148 scale A36 Mustang. It was never called the Apache, so I'm not calling it the Apache. Um, 
But yeah, it's pretty much a dive bomber Mustang. It has um, speed brakes in the wing, dive brakes in the wings. Yeah, it was a really fun kit to weather, and I love oil paints. I never realized they had the nose machine guns under the uh, engine, not on top. Yep, yep. That's weird. Cool. And then it had 450 cals in the wings. So six machine guns. Not just any machine guns, 650s. Yeah, exactly. That's pretty good. And it could carry two 500 pounders. As a question for you, how did you find accurate miniatures in terms of like fit? I honestly can't speak to that because if you remember, I got these kits from uh, Mead on Kitmaker. Oh, were they almost kind of like half built? They were like half built. Yeah, he had oh, okay. finished the cockpits, glued everything together. I just sanded the seam lines and painted it. Because I was thinking of actually getting their uh, the Academy um, one to eight forty eight scale SPD Dauntless, but it's oh, actual, get that! It, That's an amazing kit. It's, it's a Reebok uh, Accurate Miniatures kit. Don't don't worry about it. That kit is beautiful. Yep. Well, you, you better not be leading me straight here, bud. No, I'm not. <laughs> Believe me, I want that kit. Um. All right. In the bottom two slides, we have the Edward Weekend Edition BF one hundred nine G which I'm going to be building as an all-black night fighter. And I did the cockpit for it in three hours. Not bad. Nice one. Yeah. I just want to say, dude, like, your modeling, like, skill is just fucking ridiculous. Thank you. Yeah, please get worse at it. Make us yes. feel better. <laughs> please quit. <laughs> we'll, um, your head. We'll, see. we'll see. We'll see how my next show goes. Oh, yes. <laughs> So what the hell? Oh, <laughs> never again. Never I'm fucking never, again. I should, can I ban oh this my guy, please? God. <laughs> hey, no, no, kick, <laughs> kick Ezra instead of Bunker Hermit. Both of them. <laughs> okay. <laughs> they were a package no deal. Explanation. Um. No, no, there is really. I don't no, think you really. really. I, something tells me you okay. don't. So. I'm, a lot of reference pictures show German tankers wearing oh. really messed up balaclavas or ski masks or whatever. Um, so I kind of did that on my figure because, I don't know. Ezra, it, if you're trying to justify putting that abomination of a picture in here because the balaclava... <laughs> You need to go fuck right off because there are so many pictures of other assholes and baklavas besides homeboy sticking his nips out. Nacho Libre, fuck that guy. Ezra, why is the gimp from Pulp Fiction in the freaking tank slideshow? <laughs> why? Alright. So. <laughs> I made the balaclava um, by I don't care how cutting... you made the balaclava. Yeah, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> uh, honestly, looking at this picture, I wish I cut him a mouthful. Oh, God. Crazy. We're, we're glad you didn't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he would have flipped at the dude on the top. Top picture, I mean. Um... You, you, <laughs> I can't with you. So first, you put a foot behind your head. The idea just hit me in the middle of the night. 
Well, I'm sure it did. <laughs> <laughs> You're not helping yourself here, bro. You're really not. <laughs> so, it's very simple. What I did was I simply cut a hole in some tissue paper and then glued said tissue paper to his face. I know the glue you use for it, too. <laughs> yes, I used the white glue. It's more of a gray oh, color, I think. Hey, question. Did you intentionally uh, give your tanker a French manicure, manicure and uh, painted tips? Like his, did, his yes. nails are like nicely pink. He's like, oh my god, look at that. that. Um, if you have a cover, a he's going to get covered in grime and grease. So I wanted to make sure that detail pops out. Because he's in 135th. It's one sixteenth scale, my bad. Yeah. And the only reason I'm including him... <laughs> I'm only including him because I can't enter the weasel itself into a contest with an empty open hatch. Wait, you can't? No. And not not that big of a hatch. Like, that thing's enormous. It takes up half of uh, um, Big, you want to get your microphone away from the fan. Thank you. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> but no, see, you can't yell at me for including that picture because yes, it looks exactly. No, 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 no. You don't get to say we can't yell at you for that abomination of a picture. Look, That's he's showing his fat nipples. Is. Yeah, half of this is us yelling at you. <laughs> you can't complain. You claim you <laughs> added Nacho Libre. You At claim you added Nacho Libre because it's a good reference when you have a picture right above of the exact thing you're making. <laughs> exact pose as well. Yes, exactly. Yeah, you see the nips. <laughs> no! Technically, technically, there's only two nipples, though. It's like half, uh, half the deal. It, I, <sighs> Jack, you're not helping. Jack has a point. Oh, oh my god. Thank you for siding with me, Jack. <laughs> oh, I never said I was siding with you. Oh, it's your little I'm going to put some of the CA glue on there. Keep <laughs> your mouth shut. Who's next? Who's next? Oh, oh God. I'm sorry. Okay, okay, this is... No, don't worry. <laughs> this was just to show you. I have this kit. I'm building it. It's going to be done at some point in like the next five years. In the next couple years. Probably so is that, is that a uh, 35th tank next to it? Yeah. Yeah, it's an Abrams. Wow, that uh, is damn. Full that Tusk is a armor. Big model. Yeah, but that's full a one seventy-two scale. Yeah, damn, damn, damn. And then actually I behind it's an S boat. No, you the don't, same scale? because yeah, because you're gonna have to pay like three hundred pounds for a detail set for it, and the kit itself costs like one hundred fifty. Where'd you deal. get it? Where'd you get that kit? eBay. Really? For how much? 150 pounds. So that's Ugh. still pounds. That's uh, still 300 bucks New Zealand for me. Yeesh. Yeah, that's God like damn. 100 bucks. Yeah. yeah. Fucked up. I regret uh, getting <laughs> it. I will say the wooden decks are nice. Wooden nice decks are always nice. I can't deck? even use the wood. <clears throat> yes. I can't even oh. use the wooden decks, though, because they had steel decks. So I can only use it on the damn uh, it. bridge. <laughs> yeah. So damn it, that was the, a roller coaster. It was inaccurate. Oh well. 
It's pretty nice looking though. Oh! Oh, look at that! Jack Sable. Oh, it's so cute. It's little. This is my comet. Um, this is my only whip slide today. Uh, but yeah, that's painted up. There, we've got the camo, everything. Got markings that actually, surprisingly, the markings that came in the kit are the exact same ones on this like reference photo I found off Google, which is strange. Like it's got the oh cool thirteen and everything, pretty sure. Um, but yeah. What scale is this one? Uh, one one hundredth. Jesus. Very nice. How long did that take you to paint? Uh, like, honestly, like a day, because I got, I got frustrated, had to keep leaving and coming back. <laughs> did you hand paint or airbrush? Airbrush, yeah. Nice. Um, nice. Yeah, it was just like, I did a lot of, uh, didn't mask this part properly, so I had to go back and, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, I got a question, first. though. Um, when you guys make aircraft, do you use a gloss varnish? Uh, I use a matte varnish. Matte varnish? Okay. Yeah. Glosses only, gloss is only used for certain aircraft. Like, if you were doing a P-63, uh, the Black Widow? Or is it P- no, P-61. 61. Yeah. If you're doing a Black Widow, then those are done in a high-gloss black. Um, black. Or if you were doing, say, a mirror finish, uh, mirror finish, you'll do you'll use a gloss finish. But otherwise, usually for aircraft, they're more they're matte. All right. I was just thinking, feeling like it needs a bit of pop, but that'll probably come with the uh, enamels that I throw on later. So. Yeah. Well, and also because if you do a high-gloss finish and then do weathering, it looks a bit weird. Because then you have, like, a sort of matte weathering around uh, glossiness. Oh, okay. I could see that yeah. happening, yeah. Yeah. But then at the same time, gloss coats kind of do better for pin washes. So you could do a gloss coat to make weathering carrier a bit easier. Then you do a matte varnish over the whole thing just to um, seal it and just to dull it down. So okay. you got options. Okay. Yeah, I'll... Uh... I'll have to take a trip down to. Uh, I'll have to go over Dennis's way and yeah. pick up some. I'm low <laughs> on uh, matte varnish, so. Shout out Great yeah. Hobbies, Canada's best hobby store. No cap. <laughs> no cap. Um, Dennis, uh, I don't know if you guys carry it, but Jack, you should definitely get um, ammo by Mig. Um, no, one shot. Don't. No, not one shot. Oh, uh, lucky ammo, lucky varnish. Ultra matte, oh. lucky varnish. Uh, Jack, don't, don't Ultra listen matte, to this lucky varnish. foolish American. We have no need for ammo by make products at, at in Canada. It matters. Okay, not. but have you seen his models though? Shh. We don't. We need <laughs> Where is my lucky varnish? He's going on a hunt. We are going to have this all about dioramas. And if you are still here after Ezra's progress slides, I thank you for it and. You are a braver person than I. Hope you enjoy.
<laughs> like, fuck, he saw me. Because, like, it, dude, bro, the way his camera was, he was, like, right here when he did it. He was, like, doing that, looking down at it. <laughs> he was trying to show me the inside of his Greyhound, and he accidentally flipped the camera on himself. He's like, oh, fuck, hang on. Okay, there we go. I was like, oh, that's done! I'll, that's done! I'll have a restraining order against us if we did that. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. So, Ezra, you know like, what Like, he, he got him? mad when, um... He got mad when I posted that picture, that Hornet, that accidentally had his last name on it. Remember What's that? his last name? <laughs> yeah, what? No, he, no, I don't remember. We're recording. <clears throat> oh. Do not. Oh, shit. Scratch that. <laughs> Scratch everything. Did you see this? Uh, Dennis, you're going to have to um, deep throat your mic a bit more. <laughs> Did you see his name, Ezra? I want Wait, you to where? look into the camera when you do it. Yeah. <laughs> wait, wait. Just, I'll do it. Dennis, I'll do it. Dennis, Dennis, just turn turn your microphone a bit. I just want to. I just want to see it. What this? Oh, I'm not. I'm not going to do that. No. You oh, have you no. You, you have no protection on your microphone. <laughs> oh. No, of course not. <laughs> Why use protection? Yeah, feels better. <laughs> come on, come on, Calum. What, 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 what are you? Nah, see, I like I like the firmness because then it matches the fu- nah, see, I like this because it matches the fuzziness of my beard, so I just rested on it. Callum <laughs> consistency. So <laughs> jealous, Callum! I can't wait to grow my beard. <laughs> uh, right. So, what is our discussion topic for this week? Dioramas. Yeah. Yay! Very good. The Marine learned something. <laughs> oh, wow. All right, so, th- so this week we're going to be talking dioramas because we have, all five of us have made a diorama of some sort or a vignette or something like that. Vignettes count. 100%. Vignette counts. In this, in this discussion, vignettes count as anything. So I guess we've got a few questions to answer uh, in order to talk about these. So, I guess the first one is: uh, you are building a model. How do you, how do you guys decide the scene? How do you decide what base it's going to go on, what scene it's going to be, what's going to be in the scenery? Um, like, what what's your guys' process for just planning planning a base or a diorama or a vignette or whatever? Um, I mean, a reference photo is always good. Yeah. No. Uh, uh, let's go around the room. Uh, yeah. So Jack, you're first. So if you're doing a base or vignette, how do you how do you plan it? Like how how do you get started? Well, yeah. Uh, reference photo is always good. Just picking something off the internet. Uh, but a lot of my time actually goes to just picking out a bunch of like gas cans and whatever, and just arranging them until I like the composition. Like sometimes I just Sometimes I draw something out, but usually I just arrange like some sticks or gas cans or whatever will be in the diorama slash vignette uh, and just play with the composition until I am, you know, good to go. Nice. Uh, yeah, Dennis? That's... Oh, the, the idea that I plan my stuff is a bold assumption. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> it's not funny. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> you you wing it. You basically wing it. My uh, dioramas. I have never spent more than like 
four hours elapsed time on one. So yeah. Actually. <laughs> Fair enough. Huh. Uh, Isra, what's um, your take? Reference pictures. Yeah, reference pictures, or if, you know, a fun idea will pop into my head, like with my Bob Simple. But, you know, yep. other than that, I'll just try to make a base that fits the model. <clears throat> do, you ever, do you ever just sit there, like, during the day, and you're, like, just thinking about it, go, oh, fuck, that would be good. you got to just write down an idea. Have you, you guys ever done that before? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Usually, usually it's about 2 o'clock in the morning, you know, lying in bed, and you're like, oh, fuck, that's a good idea. Usually forgotten about by the next morning. Uh, I'll ask Greg uh, last, because he's like, I think in the podcast, he is the diorama man. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Greg, with your rather elaborate dioramas, how do you plan yours? How do you, uh, what's your process? Uh, so it, it kind of varies, but for the most part, like, for my Greyhound, for example, the one I'm doing right now, uh, I'll look at, like, the kit, because typically the kits come with, like, different markings for different units. And me, personally, I like to do more historical dioramas. So I'll take either reference photos from, like, the actual place. Uh, video games are also a really good place to get, like, reference, like, photos, if you would. Uh, but I'll find out, like, where the unit what unit I'm doing, making the vehicle off of, then I'll get the campaigns it was in, and depending on the campaign it was in, I will figure out if I want to do uh, basically what campaign. So at that point, that's when I'll go and find reference photos, uh, go online, look at different video games like Postscriptum, Hell Let Loose, uh, even Arma. Uh, Arma's a good one. <laughs> I wonder why. <clears throat> oh, yeah, right. Yeah. But yeah, that's uh, that's kind of the basis. I, I write it down a lot. Uh, once I kind of know the general idea of what I want to do, I'll get like a piece of paper and do like a very rough sketch of what I want to do. That's cool. <clears throat> that's cool. Um, yeah. I kind of do some. I do a little bit of planning, and then what generally whatever I plan never happens. Um, <laughs> so I I usually start every single base diorama every. I mean, all four of them, let's be honest. Um, they have started as something and turned into something completely different halfway through because I changed my mind. Um, so I usually end up with something completely different to what I started with. But that's just the way that I do stuff. So, you know, stuff like... Uh, wrong with that at all. Yeah. Like my uh, HMS Middleton diorama, my uh, German machine gunner, they all do... They all changed halfway through. So... Yeah. Well, they turned out swell. So. Hmm. Yeah. So. Um. So, what's what's the favorite material for building? What do you guys use a lot? What's what's your go-to for dioramas? For which part? Yeah. Um. Oh, for uh, depending on um. So pick out like a diorama you've built. Walk us through the process of um what you use to build it with. So I'll I'll lead. Um, yeah. <clears throat> so we'll say with this one. This really is nice. my IGB seven hundredth um, HMS Middleton, and this is one of the dioramas that started as something, and then halfway through I changed the design. Um, so this one, 
uh, I used the AK Interactive um, Stillwater as a base. I just uh, dammed it up and then used their gel effects to create these waves. Cal, um, how did you find the still water was for doing kind of like that, that aquatic base? Because you know, it's, really, it's, it's really good. Um, as long as you're not doing like a deep, deep pour. So this was only maybe three millimeters. Mm-hmm. Just to, just so I could have some sort of water-like base for doing more water effects on it. Um, right. I highly recommend that stuff because it's just pour straight out of the bottle. You don't need to mix anything or anything like that. It's um, yeah. it's really good. Um, yeah. So then, and then the gel effects, the gel effects is uh, is interesting. Um, depending on how you use it, because um, you put it, you you put it down when it's still wet. And it's it sort of smooths itself out. So uh, when you put it down, you've got to give it um, like five or so <laughs> minutes, and then you can go back with a paintbrush. I don't I don't even want to know what they're oh, giggling uh, about. Don't, don't ask. Don't ask. I, I'm not. Um, so then, and then you go back with a uh, then you go back with a paintbrush to yeah. give yourself more of a uh, broken water effect. Yeah, and then all oh, and then. With the uh, depth charge explosion, all that is is a uh, some cotton balls uh, glued down. So it's kind of an interactive sort of. Uh, I can change how the uh, physics of the uh, explosion look. So four dimensional. Yep, I can uh, change it to suit my mood, basically. Yeah, <laughs> that's amazing. How long did that take you to do? Um. About three days, three or four days. Nice. That's because I got a half. I did the I did the water effects on top of the still water, and decided to change it uh, after mm. it was dry, just because I the water the the waves and stuff were out of scale. Um, mm. They were quite out of scale, so I decided to change it. Uh, so I had. The good thing about that stuff is if you do want to change it, you literally just take the corner, corner and you could just peel it off like uh, masking tape. So and it leaves the still water underneath real good. Well, shit, um, there you go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so who else, who, wants, who else wants to go? Uh, Greg, grab a diorama and tell us about it. Oh heavens! I got too I'm putting, many I'm putting you guys on. I'm going to put you guys on the spot on this episode. This is going to be fun. <laughs> Dioramas is kind of my thing, so I'm all about Greg, it. How much juice uh, is going to be on your diorama? <laughs> <laughs> Depends what you're talking about now. Um, fuck! All right, I'm going to list a couple because I got a couple laying out right here. I've got my Vietnam Dio, my Tiger One, my Battle for France. King Tiger and my Piav Piav River World War One Dio. So which one y'all want to hear about? Let's, Let's go. Yeah, France one. Yeah, France. All right. So <laughs> this is my little France diorama. The it's nice base. Thank you. All of my bases are made from this one inch thick two foot by two foot XPS compressed foam. It's about $7 at my local hardware store, like Home Depot or uh, Lowe's. And you can get it either in this color or pink. It's pretty easy to cut. 
uh, as long as you have like a sharp exacto knife or I use like a little hand woodcutter to cut like uh, hmm. little wooden rods. It's super easy to, to work with. So I'll use that for my bases. And to show you how easy it is to use, you can see the all the brickwork on that was used with an exacto knife and a ruler. And so basically, uh, for this diorama particularly, I got the XPS foam down there, and then I got really thin, it's 8 millimeters thick, or no, 1 eighth of an inch thick XPS foam boards from Amazon. They have like paper backing. Uh, I used those for the sidewalks here and for the building uh, walls. And so what I went and did was I got the uh, lower hole of the R35 because it wasn't built yet. And I put it down on the base, and I figured, well, a side street in France is probably going to be about two of these side by side. So all I did was I put it, like, in the middle there. I drew a line, put a little marker here so I knew where to put the other side of the track link, put a line there, and that was basically how I, I measured out the street. Uh, and actually, this one was kind of a on the go with, with how the buildings are laid out but uh yeah that was basically it for this one this one was kind of easy to do yeah it's a beauty a question for you guys before we continue on I, you know, just because greg's talking about the foam right so you know how some dioramas some some builders like uh, i think one guy is uh spruce and bruce on instagram you know how their like bases are going to be actually physically taller um than say some yep. other ones where they're kind of just built onto say like yeah, yeah. Size piece of foam. What do you guys personally prefer, tall or short base? Um, uh, tall bases. Tall is nice and grand. The I taller mixed... one. Oh, good. Okay. Uh, uh, I do. A, I do a mixture. Um, just depends on the size as well. I mean, you know, you for say something this small, you wouldn't want a base of say. You know, well, not that's a bit much. You wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. For me, for me, it depends on what it is as well. Like if it's just a base to, for something to be glued down on, or if it's diorama. Yeah, Jack, what's your that's favorite material? It's my Walk favorite material. It. Yeah, well, uh, well, show off your stuff. Well, okay. Here I've got my KV two two two. Um, and well, I chose this, uh, diorama here because, well, vignette, diorama, whatever. I actually did this one, um, differently than a lot of other people do theirs. Uh, and what I can do is I can take the tank right off, um, to show, oh, nice. you can hot to show the diorama <laughs> a lot clearer, but, um, yeah, with this, how I did this is actually a canvas to get that square shape. Oh, oh it's a, that's it's a small neat. canvas under there. Yeah. And then uh, I used foam on top of that, the same foam that Greg uses. Uh, and I cut out sort of like a rough, like a really rough, like skeleton-ish shape. Um, and then on top of that, I ran out of sculpt mold a long time ago. It's kind of expensive. I don't know. Don't want to pay that. This is so, true. Uh, it, is. it is true. 
So um, I got my hands on some uh, like grout um, just for tiling. Uh, and that stuff usually does flake away pretty easy. But um, if you throw it on, mix it with PVA glue, uh, it actually, when you put it on, it dries in like a uh, sandish consistency. So it's a lot smoother. It's not lumpy. So you can get a finished product okay. a lot faster with that. Um, so yeah, it's grout. And then sprinkle some more sand on top of that. We've got the... Uh, static grass tufts that are just made with PVA glue on some, uh, uh, what's it called? Uh, you know, for static grass parchment paper. Yeah. Yeah. So static grass on parchment paper. So the uh, glue doesn't stick. And, uh, then cap it all off with a balsa wood frame. Very for nice. something very nice, very nice cool. and small. Very yeah. cool. In fact, you're a fan of using wood. I love like using actual like wooden pieces for your bases as well, like parts of logs. Yeah. yeah, wood wood blocks are really good to use as well because then it's it's not just displaying the diorama; it's also displaying the base as well. Mm. Yeah, it's also very nice cheap. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> But Israel, um, your, your turn. Oh, cool. Um, well, like Jack, I use tile grout as well. Um, this, the base for this, to try to get it in the frame, was made using tile grout uh, on a 2x6, I think. Yeah, for my shot, Keldalette. Um, I think it looks quite nice. Absolutely. It's bigger than a normal yeah. normal base I would do, but yeah, I'm very happy with how it's looking. And the, the tank's not glued down yet, so you can see like all of the painted rocks from variation I got going there. Oh, that's nice. That looks very cool. Wow. Yeah, thank you. Um, but yeah, that's pretty much just how I do them. Tile grout and then layer enamels on top of it. Very nice. Dennis, what, Dennis, what's your thoughts? What's your... Uh... So you guys have shown <laughs> all these amazing dioramas. Meanwhile, I'm out here. Like I've like literally... So maybe two months ago, no, no, more like four months ago, I got into doing dioramas, and I've been doing them like, eh, I, I I do mostly like standalone builds, but I've been trying to get into it. But yeah, so blind stuff, it I probably is mirrored. I'm assuming that the uh, the text is mirrored for you guys. No, nope. reboot. No, reboot. Okay, that's good. So, You're good. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like my stuff, I've tried to kind of make um almost like half vignette, high, half diorama, which like just a little display base for a vehicle, but then it also tells a story as well got terrible lighting but yeah i mean what i've been using really is up until now i've been using just literally scrap uh styrofoam and i've been using a hot foam cutter to kind of get it into a nice shape and um, ak interactive makes this paste not unlike their earth terrain pastes called uh 
foam texturizer and sealer. And I take a spatula and just kind of rub it along the side. And I find out kind of whatever is left, those little grooves and indentations look kind of like earth when you, you're done with it. So you, you can kind of have it look like, you know, the earth you have on your diorama fades into the base as well. Um, mm -hmm. What I've been using for uh, terrain, let me see if I can get that more visible. But yeah, kind of around, so all for my dirt and all that, I actually just use a dollar store uh, potting soil and I crush that up with them in a mortar and pestle. I get PVA glue and some sand and some rocks and then maybe a little bit of pigment, mix it all together and stipple it on. Um, that's what I use. I find it, it's, it's just cheaper than say, yang, you know, a pre-made paste. And then I airbrush the. I'll, I'll you know add my static grass and all that. I add some things like you know twigs and stuff like that. I even like you know, a spare road wheel. Um, and I airbrush the whole thing black. I've really taken the whole night shift method of it. <laughs> I, you know, I was going to say, um, sounds yeah, familiar. <laughs> yeah, well, you know what? I mean, the, that method. I was skeptical of it at first, but there's truth to the idea that you can really control how your diorama is going to look. You can control the mood of it just by, you know, painting the whole thing black and then picking stuff out after the fact. Um, so, yeah, I've, I've been trying to airbrush uh, foliage, you know. It really is pretty cool, like, you control that stuff. But for me, I'd say styrofoam. I, I love having an actual, like, tabletop foam cutter so I can just take, you know, whatever crap styrofoam we have at work and then make it into something that's base-worthy. Oh, stop bragging. <laughs> I need to give me one of those table stops. Yeah, table I need one. Cutters. I, I would say that. I mean, obviously they're a luxury, but for you know guys like you, especially you guys who you, you do so many dioramas so well, it, it'd be it'd be an investment because it does just allow you to make those really nice clean cuts. Yeah, like at the moment I'm using a hacksaw blade, and I have to use the vacuum afterwards every single time because well, yeah, it's just you won't have to use the vacuum now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just ventilate. Yeah. Yeah. Expect okay. I'm about to be moving to uh, to Kansas, and all of this is coming out of my garage into a basement. And right now, I have to sweep it out. Oh, like congratulations! Every time I diorama base. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. Excited. Yeah. So. Uh, okay. Yeah, so. I definitely need that. So I've got a question for you all. Um, what is the most out there weirdest material you've used in one of your builds? What is something that is just completely like you've found it's the weirdest thing you've ever used? Because that's one good thing about dioramas is, you know, it's not like <clears throat> a kit where you get the plastic, you know, you put the plastic bits together and it's all, you know, instructions and aftermath and all that. Dioramas is where you really go nuts on what do I have around that could replicate something else, you know? You can you literally right. just use anything around you and turn it into something else. What's what's something that you guys have used that is just really, really out there? Like for me, mm. um, on one of my bases, I use this. I've used this uh, for gravel and stuff. This comes from my dad's work, and it is um, roof tile chip seal that he gets. So yeah, I was holding Big up. Uranium yep. right there. Yep, pretty much. So I've used this a few times, uh, mainly on my Monte Cassino uh, diorama for gravel and stuff like, like that. A, looks like railway ballast. Yeah, yeah, it does. Yeah, yeah. So I've got different, I've got different colors as well for that stuff. But 
Yeah. So what's a weird material you guys have used? Mm. I don't know uh, if you've seen them, Dennis, but at Dollarama they have like packets of dried mushrooms. Of dried mushrooms. I've seen dried mushrooms, yeah. Was that dried at Dollarama the or the gun? Or the guy behind Dollarama. <laughs> I was about to say, yeah. Let expose yourself here, Jack. <laughs> what, what did the Earth look like once you bought them? <laughs> oh, he didn't see the Earth. He was on Mars. Were you able did to you talk to yourself color? in the reflection? <laughs> I'm telling you, it made the uh, diorama yeah. pretty wild. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, okay, crush but those up and use them as... Uh, Crushed up some dried mushrooms, used it as uh, like terrain. <laughs> you sure you didn't use it for anything else? Well, that, I, I hear that make a good snack. <laughs> Taking a big old bite out of a diorama. <laughs> Instead of a two by four. Oh, God. Let's see, yeah. Two by four base. Um... Okay, so Easter eggs and dioramas. I know Greg's got a f- has put a few in his. Has anyone else done a little done anything just that little bit extra to a base just to just that you know about? One thing that I've done mm-hmm. um, again, I haven't really done enough dioramas to say I've got a proper Easter egg, but let me see if I can get the lighting. I have this whole of this as a vault. You guys see right there the uh, yeah. little wheel there. So that is just from the spares bin. That is actually the uh, idler sprocket off of a Martyr 3M. And this is sort of a Normandy, th- kind of like post Normandy themed diorama. So like I've had it so that that sprocket's basically become rusted out and overgrown by plants. But you know, it, it's just something that you know people might not necessarily recognize at first. It might just be you know, a piece of debris. But if you kind of look into it, you, you kind of tells a whole story about the uh, German army being ransacked after the, after Normandy. So yeah, just like a little something. Nice. That's cool. That's cool. Oh, yeah. Nice. Yeah, I haven't built enough to uh, to have any Easter eggs. <laughs> I know, uh, Greg, he's plugged the podcast in his uh, yeah. builds. This is I'm, true. I'm, he's, he's, got the, he's got the most to say, so he's going to go last on it. Um, so for this diorama... My little thing is the MP40 and the cross. Um, it is the German take on, you know, the sort of classic uh, scene, uh, class- classic thing of, you know, the rifle upside down with the helmet and stuff on it. Well, this oh, is yeah. uh, sort of my, my take on it. It's an MP40 on a cross. Um, so it's like the German version of it, say. Yeah. But, yeah. Very nice. Yeah. And Greg, you may go with your list. <laughs> I do have, let me tell you. Uh, so the one you guys probably know the most is my uh, Russia-Ukraine war diorama showcasing the uh, teenager's room. It has all the little posters and whatnot, and he even has a Micro Machines podcast poster. That kid hey. is He was one of our early uh, supporters. Yes. <laughs> uh, another one I've got, I've got, I try adding something to every dio. And this one, I don't know how well you're going to be able to see it. Uh, actually, hang on. 
Ah, uh, let me see if I can. Uh, there's a piece of paper on the ground in the trench. You see that? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that piece of paper is actually a newspaper from the uh, uh, somewhere in Italy. I forgot where I built this a while back. Uh, it was a newspaper from in Italy from the time right before this battle took place. So like, you know, uh, troops in trenches or on the front would get newspaper from home showcasing what's going on in their country or whatever. Uh, so I wanted to add something like that to help give the idea that, hey, these guys live here. It's not just like a, a trench, you know, like a battle scene. It's it's basically home away from home. Mm-hmm. And I like to to make things look lived in. And so mm-hmm. let's do another one. You're not gonna really be able to see this, for being honest. But oh, the trees! Uh, in the, yeah, that is a lot of trees. Uh, yeah, so I don't. Oh, fuck. Right. Ah, god damn it! Hang on. I'm sorry. There's a hole where a little. Oh wait, hang on. You'll not be able to see it this way. There's a little Asian guy, sit, little Viet, Viet Cong dude, sitting in a hole. <laughs> <laughs> Can y'all see that? Yeah, that's cool. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's cool. So, with all the trees, you kind of got to see it. And the whole idea of, like, this diorama is it's an ambush scene. So, I like their popping smoke, uh, returning fire, and all that stuff. And if you really look into it, the gunner on the the uh, ACAV is talking to what would probably be, like, the squad leader, fire team leader of this infantry section. And they're kind of having a conversation. Meanwhile, right behind that guy is uh, the Viet Cong guy popping out. And he has like this kind of like surprised look on his face. So it kind of shows that whole like, uh, especially for Vietnam, the amount of like booby traps, uh, hidden ambush spots and whatnot that the Viet Cong and North Vietnamese Army had. Uh, you know, they were like literally like, touching like a meter away so just little stuff like that yeah cool <clears throat> very nice no yeah. no one else for easter eggs mm. all right so um there's one one other thing wouldn't mind talking about about um dioramas and it's uh controversies and dioramas. I know. Oh, here we go. I know Greg's um, experienced a bit of backlash on one or two of his. Um, God, yeah. And I know some. I know some other people in the uh, community has. Um, there was one guy who did a diorama of a Holocaust scene. Um, Sponsored by a certain. Company, it was. Yeah, I'm trying. I'm trying to remember who it was. Oh. A certain uh, Spanish a company. Saying. I'm gonna. Uh, Companies commissioned a variety of very questionable dioramas. <laughs> but um, wasn't there one of like a dead kid washed up on a beach? I think so. Yeah, but um, you know, it, it kind of creates the uh, discussion of like what what should you make a diorama of, what shouldn't, what shouldn't you? I know the. Uh, there's a current trend at the moment of people saying you shouldn't make dioramas of Russia, Ukraine right now. Um, 
which Greg has clearly said, fuck that, fuck you, I'm going to make it anyway. Um, which yep. he, which I think you've had a few comments about, haven't you, on like Instagram or something? Yeah, um, on Facebook. Oh, yeah. yeah. Greg, tell him about the time that he, you and I were yelling at this one Russian guy. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh, yes. Oh, my God. Uh, okay, quick story. Uh, on Instagram, I post a lot of like my work in progress on certain things, and I have a little over 900 followers. So there's a variety of people right all over the world, including Russians, which I don't like. It's fine. It doesn't bother me at all. Um, Bothers me. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it only got on my nerve whenever I started posting. And this is a guy that I have talked to before that we've get, like, we've commented on each other's stuff in good ways, given each other advice, uh, things like that. And he commented on my, one of my work in progress builds. It's the Russia Ukraine war diorama that I made it. It showcases, uh, Ukrainian freedom fighters, uh, posing in front of a captured Russian T 72. Right. Uh, and he's like taking a selfie and shit. Um, and he was like, basically, it was like, oh, you like want to be Nazi? Like, why are you supporting Ukraine? Like, the special military operation was justified and all this shit. Um, and so Dennis and I started kind of trolling the guy, and Dennis especially. Uh, Dennis, would you like to tell yeah, him what you told him in Russian? Uh, <laughs> I don't, okay, so so it's, it's in all caps right like a yelling it's like i'm sorry i can't hear you over the sound of the t80 tank burning also and it's like in then in like brackets all in like very small text also you get no bitches <laughs> <laughs> yeah so things like that people like to yeah. like to comment shit and if it's not like either up to their standard if it's not exactly how it was in history or if it's not uh, or some small flaw or whatever, not how they do it. People like to put their input in, which constructive criticism is always welcomed, especially for my shit. Uh, but there's some, especially Facebook, especially Facebook. <laughs> that place well, is Facebook like... Facebook is a cesspool. That, that yeah. lovely cesspool of toxicity, yep, yep. Uh, yeah. Oh, that was, God. That was like, um, or even YouTube. I know you had a... Was it a comment on YouTube of your... Um, Iraq diorama with the AAV. Oh yeah. Oh yes. Oh my god. Yes. Hang on, let me go find it. It's like the one oh, comment he, on that video. He got a, he got a good comment on that one. Um, yeah, should I, should oh no. Me on that guy as well. <laughs> no, let me hair, see. You pet no bitches. Touch grass. Sick him, Dennis. <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay, here it is. He said. Uh. He, I'm going to say it exactly how he typed it. He glorifying the murder 1.2 million Iraqi. So, he was saying that I was glorifying the murder of Iraqis, right? And this is a build, uh, just to show you. It was a commission build for a guy getting out of the Marine Corps. Uh, it's just a little AAV going down a road in Iraq, and it does show a, a wounded Iraqi soldier, right? It happened. That's fucking war. Like, shit happens, right? Uh, yeah, people saying shit like that, and then... Uh, so, this is my Tiger 1 in Normandy, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it's supposed mm -hmm. to be Tiger 114, which was a Tiger in Normandy. And on Facebook, there was this... This clown. 
There, mm. there were never tire tanks in Normandy. Like, bro, <laughs> simple <laughs> Google uh, search. Uh, Jack, what do you say about that statement? Yeah, right. <laughs> like, like, dude, like the the amount of like I get it. These guys are old. They are set in their ways. Whatever, that's fine. But a simple Google search, read a book, or or, or Google. Oh, yeah. Right. I I literally yeah. googled are, were there tiger tanks in Normandy. Took a screenshot of the first thing that came up and and posted it on that board. And I was like, you sir are wrong. There were tiger tanks in Normandy. There weren't a lot, right? But they were there. But they were there. They were fucking there. And yeah. he was like, oh, you're wrong. You're fabricating. I'm like, I, I give up. There's. <laughs> the, the, uh, I got. I got to admit, I always get excited, Greg, whenever you post whenever you post pictures of a diorama like that. Just because I'm like, oh, I'm just waiting. I'm waiting for that one guy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, they, come, they definitely do. Mm. Like yeah. there was, uh, like the the Vietnam Dioa showcase when I took it to the IPMS in Phoenix. That same kid that commented on my Chechen War Dio with the with the yellow leaf that He's said it was a paint splotch. Like yeah. <laughs> He, he oh, said the Viet Cong wouldn't be. No, no, no. It was it was the same day because I took both dios to that uh, that show and I had them like side by side. Uh, the same kid was like, "Oh, the the enemy wouldn't be that close in combat." I was like, "You, oh, oh, he's a kid." Fuck him, you little bitch. You're just sitting there going like, "The willpower not to punt you across this room." <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Like, mm. so I I, I kind of understand the Chechen war thing a little bit because like mm. no one really knows of the Chechen wars, and there is like a, a, a very light snow coverage of the of the diorama, but there's like a couple like red and yellow leaves kind of strung out, but they're very very few and far between. So I could kind of see where he could come from with that compared to his comment about the the. The enemy wouldn't be that close in Vietnam, but like common sense, dude. Like it's a it's the shape of a leaf. Like, yeah, I actually got. Yeah, he I recently got a um. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. This one isn't diorama, but it's still funny. I got a comment the other day of my i sixteen, my Finnish i sixteen. Um, uh -oh. Now we all know the Finnish uh, used a giant blue swastika. For their aircraft identifications. Uh, yep. Now, the kit does come with it, and I the underwing of my I sixteen has got the swastika. However, when I was halfway through recording, putting on the decals, I then thought, "Hang on, I'm recording this and going to put it on YouTube. It's probably not a good idea." So I didn't. I've just got <laughs> crosses, but no swastika. And I had someone comment on it. Hang on. Someone actually, yeah, someone commented about the lack of swastika. Um, he, he said it made me chuckle a little bit when I read it. Oh, heavens. <laughs> <laughs> it's your bill. You can do whatever the fuck you please. Yeah. I'll, like, normally, I, like, I do have aircraft with swastikas on them because accuracy. You know, that's what the yeah. markings were. Um, for this one, I purely admitted it just because it was going to go on YouTube and I know what they can be like. Um, but he's, hang on, I'm just bringing it up now. 
while you're bringing that up, I just want to point out, it's so funny that you guys are so worried about the swastika. Meanwhile, I've put the Hinamaru on literally like every third model I've built, <laughs> and I've recently done a car with like an, an, an entire rising sun over the hood. <laughs> and uh, no one's ever said anything to me about that. Well, it, I think that's why it's not as known. I think that's is okay, not I, as I, known I, as the swastika. You need to refine yeah. your edginess. Ah, here, here it is. I put um, the, oh, go ahead. He said, I really wish the model companies would get over the omit the swastika nonsense. Because <laughs> even on the uh, even on the box art, they don't have the swastika on it. Well, bro, it's the law. They can't sell it in Germany if it's got the swastika in it. Or Australia. They can't change it. Or Australia, there Ac you go. Actually, no, in Australia... Finish. <clears throat> go? Oh, go yeah. ahead. Didn't oh, some finish aircraft not have the swastika? Uh, no, no, that, not that was that was their that was their identification. Yeah, um, as well, but I think they used both. Yeah, um, well, I think the round the roundel was the blue, the white and blue uh, roundel, but then that matched mm -hmm. the British naval aircraft. They couldn't. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah, so they, they had the blue swastika. Yeah, but in in Australia, they're banning the swastika to the point where, um, like, they're having to review the review it, review the law about models. Um, you know whether whether it's educational and historical versus um, glorification. But yeah, weird sort of tangent to go on. But yeah, mentioned <laughs> the educational versus kind of like you know just interest that, i was just thinking now like what do you guys think about like the whole like the argument i've heard some people say that like if you're doing say like you know what greg did with you know the ukraine war diorama if he's doing it not to glorify it but rather to be like more educational or say like you've got a model of the bismarck the swastika on the prowl um and it's got you know, you know that is that if the guy's doing that for educational purposes not to glorify it then this like make it so you can basically make a diorama of anything, and as long as the intention is, you know, to be, you know, educational or you know, to, you know, convey a certain message, is that okay? Whereas, say, if you were building it just for, you know, you know, not to glorify, but you were building it just say for the shock value alone, does that somehow make it, you know, more or less valid as a, That's as a true. decision to make it? Or? Yeah, I think I think so it's um, yeah. a lot of intention. I think it's the intent behind it. Um, yeah, making a whole scene is pretty different from just including one little sign. Yeah, I mean, look yeah. at those AK dramas. Like those are, those are shock value. Here we go. Yeah, everything yeah. about There's, AK um... is shock value. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there was one modeler who did. It was a it was a photo of a train. It was a train at. Auschwitz, I believe. Oh, I know this area. And, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And he's got like the, the people coming off the train and then on the side there was like a stack of shoes or something like that. And he replicated that photo in as a diorama. And he got a lot of shit for it. A lot of people saying, you know, it's glorification and all that, but you know, at the same time it's like, well it's it's a it's a, it's a representation of a photo of something that actually happened that people deny. So is that more educational uh, for telling the truth? You know, um, what's your guys' take on that? Like, 
Well, I, I think like the way I, I've on... seen. Ah, yeah. Sorry, you go. I've seen the diorama. I think it's like the diorama is actually very respectful in some instances. Mm-hmm. Like, like he did it. He did it well enough that it's not glorified, but it's 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 just well done. You know, it's not censored. That it's not showcasing the actual meaning behind it, but it's not glorifying it. Yeah. I, I like he's exactly. uh, yeah. Yeah, I think a good kind of litmus test, if you're thinking of making something, is that, say, you know, with the, what you're talking about, could you say, for argument's sake, you know, put it in a museum and like a, an exhibit about it, and would it sort of make sense that it was there? You know, is it something that mm. can be used to convey a certain message, or is it just going to be something that's representing the scene with, you know, no context or no purpose, you know, that's, you know, that serves anything other than just that's a model of the Holocaust, you know? Yeah, I think it'd be better in a yeah. hotel. I'm a museum. I'm sorry. I'm like, <laughs> I'm falling asleep. Exactly yeah, welcome to Best <laughs> Western. We have Holocaust dioramas in the back. Did you ever go to the uh, Royal Ontario Museum recently, Jack? Not recently, like when I was really okay, young. Recently, they've got uh, you know, a section dedicated to that, and they have uh, Wait, actually? a scale model. Yeah, they've got a scale model oh. of um, gas chambers, and you know it's kind of like the AK thing. You know, it, there's no people in it, but like the, whoever made it weathered it. Um, they put mm-hmm. in work on that, but I think it's like that was something that they you know they had. You know, it was used more or less as a way to kind of explain what happened rather than just do, you know, not glorifying it, but just representing it for the sake of representing it. So, see something like that makes to- total and complete sense. Mm. Yeah, is a seventeen-year-old listening to death metal in his garage, building that going to be thinking the same thing? Yeah, yeah, Bruh. like yeah, because I've, I've like I did a trip to Auschwitz. I've seen those chambers. It was fucking scary. I can tell you that. Um, like, there's only one one left. The rest were hastily destroyed before the uh, it was all, it was taken over. They were trying to hide hide the evidence. Um, right. But uh, I think a diorama of that with no people in it just showing because a photo only does so much. You know, a photo is a 2D sort of here's a photo of the chamber. I think if you bring it though as a 3D, you can look around the entire thing. I think it brings a bit more to it. You know, a bit more feeling, a bit more of an idea. Mm-hmm. Right. I yeah. think um, as soon as you add uh people and uh the violence towards it that's glorifying it but if you take away the people and you take away like their emotions and uh all that that stands for it can serve as a really good uh visual representation of something historical rather than just yeah people right. suffering yeah yeah totally Right. So, has anyone else got anything to talk about with dioramas? Any other notes? Any other? No, I think we've lost Dennison on the oh, camera now. I'm here. I'm here. He's he's oh, loading. Still there. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm here. I'm here. That so that great Ontario me. internet is it? Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Man's on Rogers as well. Hmm. 
But yeah, that was a good discussion. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. So, Dennis, you want to tell tell the listeners about our socials before we uh, bugger yes. off? Oh wow, you guys are going to be able to watch us all react. Um, so <laughs> we have we're not just a podcast on Spotify and YouTube and wherever you know those two we are also a model club so we have a discord server and you can basically access it to talk with us and many other people from around the world about your scale models and all that stuff um yeah you, the server link will be in the description of all of your spotify's of <laughs> 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 uh, basically all of our episodes, you can find it there <clears throat> and uh yeah yeah join the discord Yell at us if you want, or <laughs> along. Yeah, mm. don't post yeah. random memes. Yeah, but oh, yeah. Uh, if you do join the Discord, there's always someone to chat to. If you're if you're uh, experienced in the hobby, or even if you're new, we've got we've got a few people on the server that are brand new to the hobby. And if you're stuck on something or you need advice, just shout out. Someone will answer, and you'll get some good advice. So it's like a live shout sort of tutorial. <laughs> simply if you're listening to this i will see you tomorrow <laughs> tomorrow tomorrow or the time he's watching this tomorrow it matters not i will i will see him regardless just a kind of caveat of uh what callum said uh for those of you who want to actually talk and do like hangouts with anyone we kind of host those as well. Anytime you want, we got a, like part of the Discord is modeling VC, like a voice chat. You can turn on your video camera or just do voice chat and people go in there, build together, hang out, bullshit, whatever. It's a good time. Okay. Yeah. Gaming as well. Yep. Gaming too. Oh yeah, yep. gaming. Alrighty, well, I mean, if you've watched the uh, pod up until this point, thank you all so, so much. And, it's been a pleasure making this, and we hope to see you on the next one. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Bye, everyone. Absolutely. Bye. See ya. See you, boys. <laughs> <laughs>